Well, we say adios to our youth. See you in a few. So everyone, welcome. Um, so I have the privilege and honor to once again uh, be before you in Pastor Johnny's absence, um, but he will be back with us next week, of course. So we're looking forward to that. Um, but every so often I get an opportunity um, to, to come before you, um, and I don't take it lightly. Um, as a matter of fact, it can be kind of intimidating sometimes. Um, but you know what? God is in control, um, and God has a word for us. Um, and I think I think God, you know, blesses us with with opportunities uh, where we get a chance to uh, stand in the gap and, and stand in place of those who who normally would be up here administering. Um, it, it gives them a bit of a respite and a rest, which that that's a wonderful thing. But it also allows other others of us to. To recognize that you know what god can speak through anybody god spoke through a donkey at one point right and so um god can speak through anybody and that gives me some comfort um but with that i'm here before you today um with uh, a bit of a, a continuation from the message from last week last week if you recall um if you weren't here uh, we basically looked at the when traditions religious traditions particularly get held in such a way that they actually start to do harm and damage. So we, we titled that sermon, you know, when a right, R-I-T-E, becomes wrong, when a religious right becomes wrong. And we looked at the Pharisees and Jesus um, and how Jesus dealt with that. Um, and today, we're going to extend that a bit uh, because we're on a season where there's a lot of traditions that come about. Obviously, I'm talking about Thanksgiving. I'm talking about the holiday season that is approaching. Um, and to be real honest, it is one of my favorite times of the year, particularly Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite times of the year, um, partly because I like to eat, partly because I like to eat. Um, the other part is, though, is because I have so many memories connected to it. Um, I've lived a lot of places. You know, I moved around as a kid of, of a military uh, family, um, so the places were were varied, but in all those places, you know, having Thanksgiving times in all those places, I can still remember Thanksgiving in all the various places because they're connected to food. They're connected to food that I don't usually get very often, right? It's like my favorite foods. So, so as, we, as we launch into today, just know that where we're gonna be going with this is we're gonna be looking at feasts. We're gonna be looking at feasts. We're gonna be looking at food in the scripture, particularly in Deuteronomy because God establishes some feast for his people for some very particular reasons. And I think there's a lot that when we look back at that time and all of those ordinances around the feast, it has a lot for us today in terms of how we might orient ourselves towards our future and our present. But that's where we're going. We're gonna be looking at feast and how God instituted those feasts. But in preparation for that, I want you to just sort of think through when you actually think back on those feasts of your early years, of your upbringing. What are the foods that you remember? What are the foods that you miss? What are the foods that you haven't had in a while? What are the foods that are associated with that? I mean, I want you to get that in your mind. And I think for, for most of us, if not all of us, that's not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing to do. There's something very, very powerful about food and how it's connected to memories, how food can actually bring back to the fore of our thinking, the fore of our mind, memories and things of significance. And God uses that through his feast. 
So when I think about Thanksgiving time, I get excited because number one, typically the weather changes. Now we live in a place now where it might be 85 degrees on Thanksgiving, right? That's just where we live. But for those of us who've lived other places, it's associated with changing of the weather. I remember when I lived in, in Maine and I lived in Michigan, the leaves would be different colors. You know, it'd be a very different season. And you knew as a result of that season change, there's something different. There's something new coming. And I always thought the food is coming. Thanksgiving. And so not only the, the, the weather marks those memories, but then I think about the, the food itself. And this is just in my upbringing. So, you know, now I, I really cherish Thanksgiving because I get to have desserts. That's not something that we usually do at my house. Um, but on Thanksgiving, there's desserts. There's apple dessert, apple pie. There's pecan pie. There's sweet potato dessert. These are like my favorite things. And, and I only get them like maybe once or twice a year. And there's real no, re there's no reason why it's only once or twice a year other than it's probably not good for me. Um, but it makes it special. And I, I look forward to those things. When I think about my upbringing, there's certain foods that really stand out. None of you have probably ever had chitlins in your life, right? And I don't recommend you have it. But it really is a, a dish that from African-American traditions, we would eat. Um, and it's, it's the intestines of the pork. I guess the closest thing might be menudo, right? Okay, we got some people understand that. Haggis, right? <laughs> Haggis, right? I guess, right, yes. Yeah, three plus, absolutely. Different, different cultures do different things with it. Um, not the healthiest for you, but it's all that we had at one point and we made it work, right? And we made it work. And I remember the night before Thanksgiving and the night before Christmas is the only times of the year that my mom would make this dish. I'd be up late with her cleaning these things, um, partly because I was the only one who's willing to stay up late to do it, partly because you can't stand the smell. The smell is terrible and most people leave the house, right? And don't come back till the meal is done. The smell can be that bad. But for whatever reason, those are the associations that I have. And then we've got the meal. Um, and then on top of the meal, then there's other things that just are, are burned in my mind around Thanksgiving from my upbringing. And one of those things, and I always look forward to it, is my dad would turn on the Twilight Zone, which there'd be a marathon all the time. And there's the show, for those of you who might be younger, a show in the 60s. There's a new version now. But back then, a show in the 60s, Rod Serling. And it would just be on just repeatedly. And I, I love the Twilight Zone and spending that time watching that with my dad. So these are the things that tell you, you know, when it comes to those feasts, when it comes to that food, how powerful it can be in terms of bringing back those memories and those associations and keeping those things in the fore of your mind, whereas any other time of the year, it might actually fade. So God uses this. God uses this because food is a powerful cue for memory, just like place can be a powerful cue for memory. I'm going to turn us to the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it's talking about three particular feasts that God institutes among his people. And these are the feasts where they're actually supposed to show up year after year to an appointed designated place, the entire community. And they're supposed to have these feasts together. Now, one of the things that's important to understand about these feasts as it's reflected in Deuteronomy. So let me give you a bit of the, the context and history to this. Um, and I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit in scripture. You do not necessarily have to go to all these scriptures. Well, the main ones are going to be Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 8, and Colossians 2, 14 through 16. Or Colossians 2, 16. Let's go to Colossians 2, 16. Um, but 
what's helpful to understand about the feasts as they're listed in the law, in the Torah, in the instructions are, you're going to find these feasts in Exodus somewhat, you're going to find it in Numbers, you're going to find it in Leviticus, you're going to find it in Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at the ones in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy lists three of them. There's actually seven of them. So if you look at Leviticus 23 and actually want to take a deep dive into this, Leviticus 23 lists all seven of these feasts or festivals that God institutes amongst his people. But, but what's the purpose of this? Because God actually commands his people to then do these on an annual basis. First of all, let me just offer this. Within the context of ancient Israel, we've got to go back to when God actually is establishing his people and giving them this land that he promised to their ancestor Abraham. And right before they're about to cross over into this land to possess it, God gives them these instructions through Moses. And the purpose of these instructions or the law is basically to tell them how they are to live amongst each other, tell them how they are to relate to him, and to tell them how they are to relate to the land or to nature. It's how the people need to relate to God, how they need to relate to each other, and how to relate to nature or the land. And that's what we find in all the ordinances in the law of Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, the places where God is actually spelling out his commands, his, his uh, requirements of the people. And what's important to understand about the whole prelude of this is God is moving his people into a land that God calls good. God calls this land good. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel. I remember the first time that I got out of the plane and set foot in Israel. I looked out and all I all, all I expected was, oh, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. I said that in the plane. Then I got out of the plane and I looked out on the horizon and I'm like, this place looks like the moon. It's just rocks upon rocks. And I understand why they stone people because there's plenty of stones here. It's just rocks and rocks and rocks unusually huge amounts of rocks, uh, not too much greenery. And I got there at the end of the rainy season, um, a puzzlement, right? And so this is very interesting, right? Because the, if you consider the, the topography and the landscape of this part of the world, it's not necessarily the place where anybody who looks out and says, hey, let, let's start a country and a nation here and we're gonna have a lot of bountiful harvest. This is not the place where that would necessarily jump out and say, yeah, come here. But God actually directs them to this particular place. He pulls Abraham out of a place, Mesopotamia, where there's plenty of rich land, Tigris and Euphrates area. All the soil that's there is, is very rich and fertile because of all the deposits from those rivers. And, and people who live in those areas, they, they have lots of produce and lots of bounty, and they, they connect with one another because they have an overflow as they start to trade with one another. And sooner or later, they start to combine and get together and they develop empires and they start to conquer and take over other places. The, the land in some of the places around this region is conducive for nations to develop and become big and prosperous. Further south, you've got Egypt with the Nile. And again, you've got this river that deposits all of this wonderful soil and people grow things very easily there. And, and of course, in those regions, Egypt becomes this huge powerhouse and they start to take over other nations and it becomes an empire. But right in the middle between those two areas, you've got this area of land where there's a lot of rocks, there's hills, there's mountains, 
there's some coast, so it's not all dry and desert, uh, but it's just not the place where you've got all of that rich soil in the same way. And God continually calls his people to this place and tells them that he's going to prosper them there, that they're actually going to have all that they need there. And you may wonder, well, what's the value and the purpose of that? And if you take a look in, in Deuteronomy chapter four, and you don't have to go there now, but let me just give you a, a brief summation of that. God is actually telling his people, hey, I'm going to actually prosper you in such a way. I'm going to make sure that you actually have all that you need if you live according to my laws, that you will flourish as a society and as a people in a place that actually is quite difficult. And when you flourish in a place that's actually quite difficult, the world is going to take notice of that. And when the world takes notice of how you are actually living and flourishing, what I'm actually doing for my people, it's going to draw them to me. Because when you consider where Israel is actually located on the map, it's between all of these vast, powerful empires, which those vast, powerful empires, they have trade in mind. And when they want to trade, they've got ample supply and they want to trade with each other. And in order to trade with each other, they have to travel to each other. And what's along the travel route between all these empires? It's Israel, this narrow strip of land that everybody has to pass through. So all these nations of the world who are trying to uh, participate in this trade, they have to go through Israel. And when they go through this area, they get exposed to God's people and what God is doing. So the value of, of Israel is the position of where it is, because the world has to go through that area if they're going to participate in their commerce. But when they go through that area, it's the people who are supposed to be a testimony by what God is doing for them. That's the desire. That, that's what this is about. So God's plan was to cause his people to flourish as a society in a difficult place where when people look at that, when the world looks at that, they, they must conclude, wow, your God is the God, because this is not the place where any of us would actually think we, we could flourish. In fact, the, the, the topography of this place you know, we talked about how the empires are, are connected to those flat areas with lots of, of good farms, farm soil. But in this place, when you've got hills and mountains, that actually produces people actually being separate from one another because somebody might live on this hill and the other person might live on the next hill and you never see each other because it's not easy to get to people in a, in a mountainous region or a hilly area. And when you don't see each other, then what, what does the human imagination typically do with that? It's not good stuff. We're all fallen people. So we typically start to become suspicious of one another and we fill in the blanks with things that aren't so wonderful. We start to project. We start to do all sorts of crazy things with it. And so we find all over the globe, whenever people are living in mountainous or hilly regions, it's really, really hard for people to come together. There's, there's, there's animosities that get built up around that. And there's a lot of conflict. So God wants his people in this place. And there's 12 tribes. So they're already got, you know, different identities. But God is going to bring a unity amongst his people. And God is going to bring sustenance and flourishing amongst his people when everything about the land seems like it would be pulling them apart. And who would be then responsible for that? It would be God. We'd have no other place to give this credit and glory to but God and God, God alone. That's the design. That's the context of what God is doing in Deuteronomy. If we go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, then, God promises and wants good things for his people. But along with these good things, there's some warnings that come along. So we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 8, 6 through 11. We're going to start there. 
No, good. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. All right. And it says, therefore, keep the, this is uh, Moses talking to the is Israelites. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land flowing with streams, with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. A land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and from whom, from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Now verse 11, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. And if you drop down a little further in verse 17 of that same chapter, it says, do not say to yourself in the face of all of these blessings, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. God says, this is a good land. And then God starts to lay out, here's the bounty that's going to come from the land. Here's the food that's going to be produced from this land. And in the midst of this flourishing and blessing, there's a warning because we have a tendency as people, just like ancient Israel did, to when we're actually flowing in blessings and when things are actually taken care of and God is providing for us, we can somehow start to forget that it's God that's the source of the blessing. And instead, we start to believe somehow that it's our own might, it's our own ingenuity, it's our own effort that is the source of why we're in the place in the space and position that we are today, which is a place of blessing. And we begin to believe that because of our might and our ingenuity, that any sort of accolades that might come from the world to us around that is deserved because of our own righteousness. God says that's the temptation. Therefore, in order to then do well in this land and live amongst these blessings, God has to institute some things that will cause people to not forget. He has to do some things that will cause the people that when they start to drift and think that this is all because of their, their own greatness, they have to remember, actually, it's God who actually planted us here. It's God who actually saved us out of bondage. It's God who actually led us here and is producing this bountiful crop and taking care of us. And that is the reason for the feast. Now let's go to our scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 16. That's going to look at these three feasts and understand the reason for the three feasts, the reason for all the feasts, so that we actually enjoy some good food that God has given us, but we also then associate it with a particular memory and what is it that God is actually having people remember from, from verse, from uh, chapter eight? He's, he says, don't forget all the things that God actually did for them. And the different feasts are going to be associated with the different acts that God actually did for his people. And so hold on to this, because when we think about what is it that needs to anchor us today in the midst of how we go through life, when we can start to think, well, I'm getting ahead or I'm making advancements because, you know, I'm, I'm smart. I'm making advances because, you know, I've got it going on. 
And it's like, well, you know what? God is the source of all of that. But you can forget that very easily. So, so let us remember some things. And it's not necessarily telling us in Deuteronomy, remember all the things that God has written down in the law. It's actually telling people, remember what God actually did for you. Remember the testimony. Remember how God actually showed up in difficult situations and you survived. And you not just survived, but he brought you out of it. And you're here today because God actually has sustained you and brought you here. Testimony. In chapter 16, we're going to look at the first feast. It's called the Passover. And that's something that I think most of us who are ever raised in church, we understand, you know, the Passover. Uh, that's the time of the year associated with Easter, you know, what we call Easter. Um, but we remember from the Old Testament, you know, what, what Passover was about. We go all the way back to the beginning, the very first Passover. God's people, before they even became a nation, were enslaved in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. They lived as slaves. And God said, you know what, I've heard about your misery and I'm going to bring you out. And he went head to head with Pharaoh, the, the leader of Egypt. And in that battle, in that back and forth head to head, what God ultimately did was God said, OK, well, it's time to go to his people. And here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to pass through the land. And I'm going to strike down all of the firstborn people, cattle, anything that's firstborn is going to be killed in order to escape that death sentence what you have to do is you have to take a lamb you have to slaughter it sprinkle the blood on your doorpost above you and when the angel of death passes over the land it's going to pass over the houses that have the blood on the doorpost and not touch anybody inside everybody will be spared but for those homes that don't have the blood, that are not underneath the blood, the cost will be death. And that happened. And when that happened, a huge cry went out in Israel because of the deaths. I'm sorry, a huge cry in Egypt went out because of the deaths. Israel was spared because they were obedient to God. And God brought them out. As a matter of fact, the, the Egyptians told them to go right away and told them to go so quickly that they didn't have time to necessarily gather up, you know, the, the things that they would normally gather for a long trip. They, the, the bread that they had wasn't even, it didn't even have time to rise. So they just grabbed what they could and the Egyptians, you know, gave them stuff and said, you know, be on your way. And they were out very quickly. And that's what's actually then being commemorated in the Passover festival and the Passover feast. So verse 16 or chapter 16 said, observe the month of Abib, by keeping the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd at the place that the Lord chose as a dwelling for his name. You must not eat it with anything leavened. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, the bread of affliction, because you came out of the land of Egypt in great haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the day of your departure from the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, and none of the meat of what you slaughter on the evening of the first day shall remain until morning. You are not permitted to offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, only there shall you offer the Passover sacrifice. In the evening at sunset, the time of day when you departed from Egypt. 
You shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. The next morning you may go back to your tents. For six days you shall continue to eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly for the Lord your God when you shall do no work. Let's pause for a moment with this. I think we're generally familiar with what, what is being commemorated with this, but, but the point that God is making is remember God's deliverance out of bondage and slavery from Egypt and remember what that experience was, how quickly you had to get out. Remember you had to put the, the blood above the doorpost. And every year then you have to actually commemorate this with a feast. That lamb, you've got to sacrifice it. That's going to be the first part of the feast. But then there's actually a second meal. There's a second feast. and But they're treated as one. But there's a second feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you look in, in Leviticus 23, that outlines all the feasts. The first feast typically are two meals, two distinct meals. But, but they're so intertwined that they're treated as one. And, and so much so that when you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 1, it's talking about the Passover feast, but it's also talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they basically make them synonymous. It says the Passover, which is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they, they sort of, they put them together and they don't really make a distinction between the two, but they are two different meals. The meal of the lamb and the meal of the unleavened bread. Years upon years upon years, God people, God's people do this feast. God's people are remembering God brought us out of Egypt. God spared us. God's people are remembering we have to get rid of all the leaven out of our house and eat this bread that doesn't rise. But they've got to get rid of all the leaven out of the house, all the yeast, anything that makes bread good and rise to us. They've got to get rid of all of that. And they do this year upon year upon year, hundreds of years, thousand years, two thousand years. Jesus shows up on the scene. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, of course, God has populated his people, but they're still keeping this ordinance. And a part of why things appear in, in Deuteronomy is because the three feasts, people actually have to go to the designated place, which at that point became Jerusalem. So no matter where they were, they had to all go to Jerusalem for this feast. And they don't always have to always bring the lamb because some people are coming from very far. So they put in ordinances where when you get to Jerusalem, you can actually purchase a lamb and that will be the lamb that you slaughter. And that's the lamb that goes for the first part of the feast. So all of these thousands and thousands of people descend upon Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And everybody's looking for the Passover lamb that they would need for to actually have this sacrifice and, and have this feast. And, and, and all of those people trying to find these lambs, the triumphal entry happens. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes into Jerusalem. And Jesus, just within a few days, would be crucified as the sacrificial lamb that then covers the sins of everybody once and for all. And I don't think it's a mistake or happenstance that you've got two feasts combined here because there's that Passover feast, but then there's the unleavened bread feast as well. And the unleavened bread feast, the point is get rid of all of the leaven out of your houses. Leaven typically is equated to sin. And because it's been treated as one thing through the Old Testament and one thing through the New Testament and one thing even today by Jews, 
I think there is something in that that's basically saying, when there is salvation, praise God for them. But what comes right along with that salvation is there's got to be a transformation and sin's got to be dealt with. You've got to get rid of it. And I think that's a really important message to hold on to because there's so often today when we see how the world is actually responding and, and treating um, churches and, and church teachings, you know, a, a lot of times you can come away with the conclusion that somehow you can you can still be Christian and hold on to whatever sin you've got going on in your life. The important thing is that you are holding on to God. And yes, hold on to God. Okay, but biblically, holding on to God absolutely is intertwined and inextricable from then God is going to do something that orients us in a way where we then get rid of sin. We start to then get convicted. And, and in, the, in that conviction, we, we turn those things over. And it's not so much that, that we can sort of get rid of sin on our own. God's got to do that through his Holy Spirit. But those things are in tandem. They, they can't be pulled apart. So scripture, biblically speaking, salvation, the gift of God, absolutely must be met with the right orientation and willingness to do something about our sin. God does not want that to proliferate. It talks about sin like leaven. You put a little leaven in a bit of bread, and all of a sudden the leaven proliferates through the bread. It doesn't stay compartmentalized. And now you get the bread that's risen, and you get these, these little holes, and it might make the bread good, but it's an illustration for that's how serious God takes sin, because sin permeates. We think it stays in one little area that we give it space, but it starts to take over other aspects of our lives, and God treats that very seriously. We come to the second feast. The second feast listed in Deuteronomy is a little different than the first. And I think it's helpful to understand a bit about just how the, the, the food comes out of the ground and why these feasts are, are in the order that they are. So if you think about the, the Jewish calendar, Jewish calendar does not begin in January. You ever notice when, when all the Jewish holidays are typically September, mid-September, late September, Rosh Hashanah, New Year, their year begins according to the agrarian the agrarian cycle in that part of the world. The agrarian cycle meaning when can you start to grow food? And when you can start to actually plant and grow food starts when the rains actually come. It can be kind of dry in the Middle East. I don't know if you ever looked at that, but it can be kind of dry there. And so when you get through those summer months, and at the end of the summer months, you know, that that August time frame coming into September, the ground is so baked hard, you cannot even break it up if you had tools. So what happens in the beginning of September, mid-September, those first rains start to come. So they've got two seasons. They've got, they don't have four, they've got two. They got dry season, they got rain season. The rains start, and the rains start, but they start a lot like the rain looks here in, here in Southern California. I remember when I first moved here and it first rained, which took months to rain after I moved here. And when it first rained and I saw in the news, hey, there's rain coming. And the news was like storm watch. And I'm like, oh, good. It hadn't rained in months. I didn't even realize it rained here. I go outside and storm watch and it's misting. I'm like, you know, you don't really get wet here when it rains unless you just stand out there for hours. I was not accustomed to that, but that's the type of rain that starts in September in this part of the world. So it's this mist, this very gentle rain that starts in the mid-September timeframe. And just, just enough so that it starts to moisten the ground 
that at least the farmers can now break through it and start to turn the soil over. And so that's going to continue for a couple of months through September and October. And the farmers are out there sort of turning over the soil because the soil is now loosening up. And right in that November time frame, then the rains start to shift into much more heavy rains. And so the farmers are going to do all the planting in that November time frame because now the ground is soft. They put the seeds in the ground. The rains come in December. December through February, that's when the heavy rains are actually happening. Now the plants and the crops are actually growing up through the ground. And so usually then by the time you get to early March, you get the first harvest of the crops that come up. And the first harvest is typically the barley. The rains actually start to taper off in March. So they become like that mist again. So we're just trying to stay, they're trying to squeeze out that last little bit of moisture from the air. And by the time April comes and the barley harvest is over, now we're going into the dry season. And then the wheat is there and they do the harvesting of the wheat. And then after the wheat is harvested, they have this period where other things are growing, but you gotta wait a little bit because now we've entered the dry season. And once you hit into the dry season, it becomes really dry and that, that sun comes out in the Middle East and that, that's no joke. It starts to bake the ground again. But what you also get is now you get all of your produce in terms of your grapes. The vines now start to ripen. The pomegranates, the figs start to come out. Those are the things that we start to get ripe in those summer months when things are actually hot, the summer fruit. And so then they'll harvest that, but they've got to wait a little while and then they harvest that. And then we get to, that's what brings us to the festival of weeks. Because from that first fest, uh, festival where we're celebrating the Passover, you count seven weeks, which is about 50 days. Then God says there's another feast time. Verse 9 says you count seven weeks, begin to count seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the festival of weeks to the Lord your God, contributing a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing that you have received from the Lord your God. Rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites, the Levites resident in your towns, as well as the strangers, the orphans, and the widows who are among you. At the place that the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. So everybody has to come together again in the same place for this one. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and diligently observe these statutes. Again, the feast is to remember what God did in bringing the people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Now, this particular feast, though, if we pause and we bring this then into New Testament timeframes, got a lot for us. I know we don't typically think about these feasts and what we see in Deuteronomy as having a lot of applicability. But if we think then and we fast forward to, to Jesus, remember, Jesus showed up in Jerusalem Around the Passover, unleavened bread time, he was crucified days therein. There is another feast that happens in between the festival of weeks and that Passover unleavened bread festival that's not listed here because you're not necessarily supposed to come to Jerusalem to do it. You can do it at your home. And that's called the Feast of the First Fruits. And the Feast of the First Fruits is basically you start to get those very first fruits from your field that start to come in 
and you don't eat the, that fruit. You actually take it. It's a grain offering typically. You take it, you know, before God and you, you're excited and you give it to God because it's more the appreciation that God is sustaining you, but it's really the anticipation of all the bounty that's about to come. This is just the first section, but God's about to bring in the whole bunch of it, right? And so it's the anticipation of all this food that's actually about to flow through at this point. That's first fruits. It's giving to God the first fruits. Well, the first fruits feast typically is going to be instituted on the first day after the Sabbath, after the unleavened bread feast. So it's about a week. But it's the first, it's somewhere that it, it rotates because they have a different calendar. So it's going to be different each year. But when you think about Jesus, he was crucified somewhere in that Passover unleavened bread time. And on what happened then to Jesus on the first day after the Sabbath, after he was crucified? He rose. he rose. Are you making a link? Jesus Christ resurrected at the time of this feast of the first fruits. So when we look at scripture, and, and scripture refers to Jesus as the, the firstborn among the brethren, or it refers in talking about Jesus as, you know, the, the first fruits um, in the spirit. It's connected in deep ways to this Jewish community because God has instituted this food and these memories in such a way where they can make these links, or at least they should have been able to make these links. Jesus shows up on the scene in such a way where he's actually fulfilling the real meaning and, and the real essence behind what these feasts and festivals are actually supposed to represent. So, so there's that feast of the first fruits that happened. And then after that, that feast, you have to count seven weeks, which is about 50 days about 50 days. Then you get another feast, the Feast of Weeks, which we just looked at, which in Jesus' time, because they were speaking Greek, they had a different name for it. 50, Pentecost. And so when Pentecost, that feast is supposed to take place, everyone again comes to Jerusalem. And what do we know from the New Testament in terms of after Jesus resurrected? He walked around doing some ministry, and after about 40 days, he ascended. But after about 50 days, everybody, all his followers were gathered in a place for Pentecost, for the cease, because they needed to be in Jerusalem. And that is where then God sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit fell, and people spoke in tongues, and something really miraculous happened beyond the speaking in tongues, which really connects with the purpose of the feast here. And so if we think back, you don't have to go here in scripture, but if you think back to Acts chapter two, Holy Spirit falls and these followers of Christ start to speak in all these different languages, speaking in tongues as a sign of the Holy Spirit being upon them. And the people listening come to a very interesting conclusion, very interesting conclusion. They say, wow, these people are drunk. That's their conclusion, right? These people must be drunk. Now, that's not a wild conclusion to draw if you consider, yeah, well, some people are just, you know, worldly, right? If you're a part of the world and you see people making a lot of noise and not making a whole lot of sense, what, what can you equate that to? Probably the thing in your experience, yeah, I've seen drunk people do that. I've seen people who, who are high on stuff make no sense as they're at, it's just a clamor. That's what they're concluding. And, and that's an interesting conclusion, right? which 
I would just say, I'm just offer. Yeah, you're, you're seeing people with a leavened mind because they're in the world and they're trying to make sense of what they're seeing and what they're hearing based on the lens that they have. And then you get this fella named Simon Peter who then stands up at that time and addresses the crowd, the issues that they're raising. And they are saying, these people are drunk, coming with this leavened mind, this worldly perspective. And, and Peter's response is not, this is the spirit of God. That's not how he starts. He doesn't start with grand theology. He starts with a perspective that seems just as worldly as theirs, if you read it. Because he says, these people aren't drunk. And his argument as to why they're not drunk is not because the spirit of God is there. His argument is because it's too early in the morning to be drunk. That's only coming from somebody who knows what it's like to be in the world. Peter, the guy when, you know, the disciples are going around, you might think, well, the disciples, they probably have scripture on their mind and maybe they carry the scrolls around. Well, Peter's carried a knife. And remember when they came to get Jesus and he pulled that knife and he cut somebody's ear off? Peter. This fella was the type of person that I know. <laughs> this is the type of guy that I know. I got plenty of friends that... I love to hang around with, and my wife can't stand it when I do, but I like these guys, right? These, these are the people who you would not think would be in the kingdom doing much, but these are the people who God uses. Because what Peter actually goes on to say, and, and I, can, I can see the other disciples standing in the background when Peter says, hey, they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to be drunk. And I can see them roll their eyes. I can see the other disciples roll their eyes. Peter, where are we going with this? Here we go again. But then Peter goes into a sermon that actually lays everything out and the spirit of God is upon him. And as a result of that sermon, 3,000 of those people come to Christ. So when we think about the first fruits and what that feast represents, which means, hey, we're looking forward to the bounty that God is about to bring from the crops in about seven weeks, Christ raises, seven weeks later, 3,000 people. Are you seeing the link? This is what God is actually saying. This is what God is actually showing us. There are things to be mined from what God actually institutes if we can keep it in the fore of our mind. The last feast, the last festival, Festival of Booths, says, You shall keep the Festival of Booths for seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Rejoice, rejoice during your festival, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, as well as the Levites, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows resident in your towns. Seven days you shall keep the festival to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your undertakings, and you shall, uh, you shall surely celebrate. And it says, three times a year, you and all your male, males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and at the festival of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All shall give as they are able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The festival of booths. Booths. 
if you look at why this festival is still being instituted today is actually being had the boots actually represent and what God is actually having his people remember is when they're now in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they wander for 40 years because they can't quite get instructions right from God. And you know what? They're sort of not quite right to be able to follow God. And so there, there's consequences and costs to that. So God still takes care of them in the midst of all of that, though. So as they're wandering in the desert, a very, very rough terrain, none of their shoes wear out for 40 years. There's no food out there. God provides food in the form of manna. God provides food in the form of quail. God provides water in the form of coming from a rock. God is taking care of them. And 40 years they're dealing with the height of the baking sun in the summer and the extreme drop in temperature at night. And God even takes care of them by showing up and leading them in the form of a cloud that provides shade in the day and a pillar of fire that provides warmth and light at night. Even in the midst of a very difficult season for them, God is there taking care of them, making sure that his people survive and have what they need. And this is what's being commemorated because in the desert, they don't have permanent shelters. They have these booths that they would actually build, construct, because they're nomadic. They're, they're constructing them, they're taking them down. That's what this feast is supposed to represent. So even today, when this feast is represented, you'll find observant Jews putting up sort of a tent structure in their yards and having a meal there. And that, that's the setting for this. It's meant to commemorate God's care in the midst of the wilderness. But it's also associated with, associated with a particular meal because this meal, much later, much later than the other feasts, at this point, all of the harvest had come in. All of the pomegranates, all the figs, all, all everything is all done. The olives are ripe. So there's a huge bounty. And everybody's supposed to show up to this feast bringing some things. And we're all supposed to feast and eat together. And the spread is magnificent. This is the type of feast you want to be a part of, right? This is, the, I've been to a Seder. I've had the bitter herbs, okay? I want to be at this feast. If you've ever been to a Seder, limited menu, right? This is the feast you want to be at. Everything, it, everything's on the table here. And everybody contributes to this one. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, you don't really find anywhere in the New Testament where his ministry is necessarily coinciding with this feast. And so many people who, who wrestle with these things, you know, the conclusion is, well, this part of Jesus' ministry actually hasn't actually materialized yet. Meaning he ascended, he's coming back. And when he comes back, I know a lot of times we think about, well, when he comes back, that's the rapture and we all go up to heaven and that's the end of the story. But there's actually... When you look at Leviticus 23, there's actually three more feasts. You know, this is the last one, but there's two other feasts. There, there's the Feast of Trumpets, and there's the Feast of the Day of Atonement. Then there's this feast, the Feast of Booths. So there's three other feasts, and, and none of those three feasts seem like they coincide with anything in terms of Jesus' ministry as recorded in Scripture, which leaves us to, to draw the conclusion, well, maybe that's when Jesus returns Jesus' ministry is going to take on those feasts. That then they start to play out in Jesus' ministry when he returns, which means there's work to do when he returns. I know a lot of us think that when he comes back, hallelujah, we all go to heaven and that's it. Consider the Feast of Trumpets. 
Feast of Trumpets, when you read about it in Leviticus, if you want to do a study on that, you hear a trumpet sound. And if you go into 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe, I think that's where it is, it actually talks about what you're actually going to hear on that day will be a command from Jesus, the voice of an archangel, and then the trumpet of God. Trumpet of God. And it's referring to this feast of the trumpet. At some point in the future, something's going to happen. And that means Jesus is coming down from heaven and he gives the command. And then the dead shall arise first in Christ and they meet him in the air. And that's all in First Thessalonians. And so if we consider that scripture, we consider that particular feast. It's very interesting to me how gracious God is. It, I know a lot of times, consider this. Everywhere in the Old Testament, everywhere in, in African culture history, because I'm more familiar with that. When, when the king returns from a long excursion someplace, when you get word that he's returning, the people of the village don't sit at home. They go out to greet the king and they walk back with him to the village. You see it in, New, in the Old Testament as well. When we're talking about the kings who go out to battle when they're coming back, the people go out to beat him. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus walks comes into Jerusalem, the people go out to the street to meet him, to greet him to, to, as he's coming into Jerusalem. All these things are very consistent. And so God is so gracious because when our king, Jesus, comes back for the second time, how do we go meet him if he's not coming from the east or the west, but he's coming from heaven? The only way we can meet him is if we are changed and we can go up into the air and meet him to come back with him, to come back with him. Because there's more work to be done. And that's what these feasts are actually talking about and describing in Leviticus 23. And so at some point, there's ministries that happen from Jesus' second return that we've not yet had an opportunity to witness and experience, but we anticipate. And the final feast, which is what's reflected here in the Feast of Booths, is when Jews, Gentiles, Every nation, every tribe, every tongue has what we need, and we all come to God's table together. It's it's the big celebration. That's the one you got to be at. And so when we think about what these feasts are actually telling us, consider that it actually just might be a template for things that we've seen through Jesus' ministry, but also things that we've yet to see through Jesus' ministry. And what's the beauty of this? God is giving us some things that help us to orient for how we are to actually approach when these things happen. The church age, where we are today, is in this really interesting time between that, that festival of weeks where there, there's this grain offering, this bread offering. And let me say what this bread offering, festival of weeks, what that offering actually is, it's people take two leavened pieces of bread and wave them before God in thanks. And God accepts that. And, and think about that. Leavened pieces of bread. Leavened bread. That's what you're bringing before God. Leaven, which is equated to sin, somehow becomes an acceptable offering to God. Then I'll draw us back to, well, remember when, when Peter was dealing with those 3,000 people and 
They sound really worldly, that leavened mind, and yet it was acceptable to God, and God shows it by showing up and 3,000 come to believe. A lot of connections there. So the Spirit of God can dwell with sinful man now, and man is not destroyed, and what we have to offer is acceptable to God. That's the age that we're in now, this harvest season. But there's this long gap between that feast and the next feast, which are the farmers. There's a long gap because it's all about harvest. We're gathering in all of the pomegranates and the figs. It's about harvest. And so that's a longer season. And so we've been waiting 2,000 years now, and you know every generation is so convinced that, that Jesus is coming back, and one of these generations is going to be correct. But thank God that it's a long season because it's a time where God is being gracious so that the Gentiles can be gathered in. It's the harvest season. We should be a harvest church. Right? That is what this age is about. It's about going out and gathering because the harvest is plentiful. It's the labors that are few. One of the things that I would just leave us with, if we can chew on these things literally, chew on them, while we have our feasts, while we have our festivals, while we remember great things, let us remember the ways that God has actually shown up in our lives, in our testimonies. Because these are the things that if we can continue to keep these things at the fore of our mind, and don't forget that it is God at the source, it helps us to orient through our present and into our future as God gives blessing, as God unfolds things. In, in my own tradition, you, you, you might see in many African-American traditions, there's a symbol, it's this bird that's looking back over its shoulder and it's called Sankofa. And what that means is in order to move forward, you gotta look back. There's something in your history that you need in order to move forward. When you consider Jews in, in ancient Israel, they, they've got this way of uh, moving into their future they call it, we back into our future. We back, we walk backwards into our future, which means they have to orient to their past. So if their past is, here are the things that God has said, here are the things that God has done, we stay oriented there, and we look over our shoulder as we back into our future. That is the proper orientation for moving forward. I know in this country, in our culture, it's all about forward facing. If anything, we look back just to take a glance, but we keep moving forward. But biblically speaking, the culture's here. It's focus on what God's character has, has been demonstrated as because it's the things in the past that are definite. Future, uncertain. You don't know. What you do know is here's what happened and here's how God showed up. Those things are certain. And if we have that sort of an orientation, now we can begin to have the type and hold the type of hope that scripture is actually talking about, the Christian hope, the type of hope that's a biblical hope, the type of hope that doesn't end up in despair and pessimism because number one, the world's hope, the way that the world establishes hope is it looks for some evidence in the present that things might be better in the future. And when things are not so bad in the present, that's easy to do. But when things are actually bad, when you actually go through the worst, there may be nothing in your present that it gives, gives any sort of modicum of indication that things are gonna be better anytime soon. Some groups have had 400 years of slavery, Egypt, or Israelites. African-Americans in this country, some people went through a long time where things just did not look good and they weren't going to get good anytime soon. So how do you not lose hope? How do you hold on to what God has for you in a way that you don't get crushed and you end up in despair and you, and you just are extinguished by it? 
you look at what are the promises of God and how has God shown up and you look into that past based on what God has said about the future, based on what God has ensured about the victory, based on what God has actually said will, he will bring about. And you hold on to that and you project that into your future. That's hope that doesn't end in despair because it's not based on what you can see with your eyes in the present. It's based on faith. And so if we can get that orientation right, so many things open up to us as a church, as individuals, and we grow and we can actually not just survive through circumstances in context that look like they would not lead to our thriving. The land of Israel. Doesn't look like anything would grow here. Nobody's wanting to necessarily be here. But yet God can take that. And because of God's word, because of his instruction, because of how he shows up, we flourish. It doesn't mean we're rich. It just means God's presence is evident and obvious. And that becomes part of the testimony that people see. So with that, and I close with this. Let's orient to our past a little and back into our future. And God give us the wisdom to understand what that actually means. God give us the wisdom to, to find ways to as we come together around the table this Thanksgiving, as we create new memories, let some of those memories, let some of those traditions actually be things that are anchored and rooting us in the things that God has actually done and shown up in, in personal ways, in our families. We are all here today by the grace of God. So we trace those things and we recognize God in our own doings, even when it may not be wonderful. Some of us definitely have come through some difficulty and by the grace of God, God has gotten us through it. Let us hold fast to God's presence in our lives. Let us anchor ourselves in ways that no matter what comes in the future, we know how to orient to it and make sense of it. And again, I'll close with this. Think about Simon Peter once. We like to, to make fun of him because he's, he's the disciple who seemed like he was the most impulsive to cut people's ears off. He, he says stuff like, you know, people aren't drunk because it's just nine o'clock in the morning, that, you know. But he knows his scriptures. He, he's coming from someplace with this. And if you consider the Mount of Transfiguration, when it's him, James and John, and they're there with Jesus, and Jesus is changed before their eyes. And now it's Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, and this cloud descends, and Simon Peter speaks up and he says something that seems kind of foolish, which is, hey, you know, it's good for us to be here. Let us let us build, you know, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and you know, how we treat that, you know, in the churches is, you know, he, he's starting a new religion. And that's not the direction that Jesus needs to go because he's had to shut that down. And we fail, what we fail to see is this fella knew these feasts because what he's talking about is, wow, Jesus is here. He's changed. Is this the beginning of the reign where now we've got the dead who've arisen in Christ. We've got the cloud that ascended like it did back at the tabernacle in Old Testament times. We are standing here as people not being destroyed in the presence of God. Is this the feast, the final feast where now God establishes his reign on earth? The feast of booths. So let us build three booths. He just missed it in the timing. 
He's just a thousand, few thousand years too early. But he's coming from someplace. So if we can, if we can grapple with these things, there's a lot for us here. But don't let us get caught up in the traditions, because where I want to just conclude is in Colossians 2, 16, where it's actually talking about, hey, you know what? And he's talking to Paul is talking to the church. He's saying there's a lot of traditions out there. But in verse 16, he says, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of, or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. So, hey, the festivals, it's good stuff. But verse 17 says, these are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The feast, good stuff, good food, wonderful, great memories. The substance, though, is it should point us to Christ. Help us to struggle to find those links and those connections each and every day as we feast this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed things to humankind, Lord, deep things. Lord, help us to grab a hold of your instruction. Lord, help us to hold on to you by faith, Lord, in such a way that we would become a testimony. Lord, help us be about the business of harvesting souls, Father God, in this age that you planted us, Lord. Help us to not lose hope. Help us to not conclude that you are slow in your return. Lord, help us to understand that it is by your grace that we are in this space and in this place. Lord, bring the harvest. Anchor us in you, Lord. And when it's all said and done and we're all at the table together, hallelujah, we give you the glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.